Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. Welcome once again, folks, to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour, right here on 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word. Um, Once again, uh, my good friend Alan Dempsey does the engineering. Uh, Andrew Hudliska produces our show. Uh, Jonathan Walton is in New York City. Uh, He's an area ministry director for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. He uh, has a new book out, and it's an interesting one. It's called 12 Lies That Hold America Captive. Jonathan, first of all, welcome. I'm so glad that we can uh, get together here. How are you? I'm doing well, and thank you so much for having me as a guest on the show. Why was it important for you to write this book? Um, I think the best answer um, is that I want my daughter to know who Jesus is. Um, and more importantly, I want her to know the things that will set themselves up as Messiah, as purpose, as all of the, the things that she gets from Jesus um, will set themselves up as idols. So to really say, hey, money, sexuality, racism, exploitation, these are not the things to take your joy in. Would you look to Jesus? And so I kind of go through my life and wanted to offer that to her and ultimately to lots of people. But if I leave anything to my daughter and to my family, I want them to know that Jesus is the only way, truth, and the life. Well, let's get started on these 12 lies. Lie number one, we mm-hmm. are a Christian nation. Uh, mm-hmm. Take uh, Fill us in on that, Jonathan. Yeah, well, I think lots of books have been written about um, like the America not being a Christian nation. I think Greg Boyd wrote The Myth of a Christian Nation, and many people have talked about it from a historical perspective. Um, But I really wanted to look at it from an exegetical perspective, looking at the interaction between Peter and Jesus and the oppression of the Jewish people by the Roman government. And so when Jesus is arrested and Peter pulls out the sword and chops off his ear, uh, uh, the ear of the soldiers, um, that's a moment, like they're looking for this political revolution, this state that's going to be, and Jesus rebukes him and then ultimately goes to the cross and is crucified. Um, and the, there's these interact, another interaction with Peter where Peter says um, in, in Acts 1, after Jesus is resurrected, like, is this the time that you've come to, to liberate us? Um, and the reality is Jesus says no, and then the Holy Spirit falls in Acts 2, and then the Great Commission is is given. And, the, and so my 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 lens primarily is, yes, there's historical reasons for why the United States doesn't live up to the kingdom of God. But even more than that, that wasn't actually God's plan for redemption. God's plan for redemption is revealed in John's revelation, and there's a kingdom that's coming um, through Jesus, and it, it upends everything, including the nation states that exist in this world that would set themselves up as ultimate things in opposition to God. Second lie. We all are immigrants. Right. So if the lies build on each other, so primarily I believe the invitation of any idol is to have your identity defined by that idol in the same way that God defines us. So we could either be made in the image of God or we could be made in the image of an idol. And I think that when Europeans came to America, there were these two groups of people, and both of them had visions for remaking Europe. Um, and so what we get is the system of saying, well, this is how you will define yourself. And I think anyone who lives in America or is, is downstream of European influence is that there's this idea that, like, we all have a story, but I believe that there's an invitation to a specific story in America, and that is, we're all coming here for a better life. We all came here for a better life. And again, I think there's something different when God defines what that better life is. And I think um, to pursue life, liberty, and happiness is very, very different from taking up your cross, denying yourself, and following Jesus. 
And so I, I believe the followers of Jesus are invited to follow Jesus to cavalry and not to comfort in climbing up any type of ladder that's set up in our culture, including the one that's laid out before immigrants, um, because our stories are much more complex um, than that. Let's move to the third lie. We are a melting pot. What do you have to say there, Jonathan? Yeah, so um, the image of the melting pot actually comes from the um, 15th and 16th century when people are trying to define like what America was. Um, and there's, a, there's an invitation, like literally when you make metal, you melt things into each other. Um, and so that's where I think the idea of someone being colorblind comes from. Um, but again, if, if we build on the lies, God actually gets to define ethnicity, not the boxes we check in any country in the world. God has gifted us with cultures and backgrounds and narratives that are beautiful and wonderful. And when we opt out of those narratives, I think we actually miss out on Revelation 7. We get a picture of every tribe and every tongue and every nation bringing their offering before God. And so we're not necessarily melting into one perfect group of people, but we are being made perfect in Christ. And so God has gifted us, and it, I believe he's going to redeem those gifts. Um, we're not going to melt into one new set of people, Not, i.e., we are not going to be this holy Christian nation that's going to be set up that everybody emulates going back. That's not actually his plan, um, but we would be witnesses among Babylon calling people to follow Jesus. And so... Um, the melting pot is a, would, do you want to be melted into that kingdom? And I would say followers of Jesus do not. We actually want to be one with God and be fully present as he would have us to be in this world and praise God in the next. Jonathan Walton is with us from New York City. His book, 12 Lies That Hold America Captive. Uh, lie number four, all men are created equal. Uh, what do you write there, Jonathan? Yeah, so again, the, the, this, the, the book is divided, I think, into these sections, and part four is kind of the end of that. Well, now that I've defined your, your faith story, this is what faith looks like in America. And now I've defined it how you are to see your story in America, being an immigrant, and how you are to see how you sit with other people as a melting pot. Now let me define what equality looks like. And I think that when we have, um, like, a, the only person, the only being that gets to define what equality looks like is God. And that's where I think the exchange for Genesis 1, where all people are made in the image of God, gets exchanged for the Bill of Rights and the Declaration of Independence. And that, that's where I think there's, there's some tension, particularly because um, I believe, as a follower of Jesus, that we are sinful people. Um, and so what that necessitates for me is a regular confession of my brokenness before God and inviting Him to sanctify and change me. Um, and so the way that I believe um, we, we miss the mark to use a sin is to say, um, if everybody's the same, uh, which I don't actually believe is true, and I think Second Corinthians gets at that, where not all members of God's body are the same. And so how do we give honor to the most dishonored part? And then James one twenty seven, like, how do we show preference to the poor and the marginalized and the religion that is blameless? And so how do, we, how do we live out this gospel? I believe that we have to actually acknowledge that there are personal, relational, and systemic inequalities and pursue the reconciliation from Second Corinthians chapter 5 that God calls us. Now, tell us about line number five. We are a great democracy. Right. Um, so again, coming back from chapter one, like Christianity is not a democracy, right? We have, we serve a wonderful God. His name is Jesus, Father, Son, Spirit, three and one, one and three. I don't get to vote on, we saw Peter try to do that where, hey, don't go to the cross. Like, no, we actually get to choose if we follow Jesus or not. And his kingdom is coming and there's nothing we can do about it. We get to either choose to, to be with him or the day will come when we are separate from him for eternity. So I want to be very clear um, that, like, when we say, like, well, this is, this is the system that God would set up, and, it, it, again, we, the, any kingdom set up in front of the living God will fall. And so coming into life five, we actually look at, out of 
the first four lies. Now, how do we interact with power? And I think in, we have this illusion that if we can vote, then we are powerful. And if we cannot vote, then we are not. Um, and there's genuine, clear, I give examples of like gerrymandering, voter suppression and things like that, where people's voices are marginalized. But again, the making us a true democracy in that sense of the word is not, is still not God's intention. And so I believe there's an invitation for us as followers of Jesus to interact with power in the world differently out of Ephesians chapter six. My guest is Jonathan Walton. Uh, his book is called 12 Lies That Hold America Captive. We've got more with Jonathan right after these messages on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word in Orlando. Jonathan Walton is with us from New York City. Uh, the Lies That Bind. Uh, we've reached lie number six, Jonathan. The American Dream is Alive and Well. <laughs> well, I think the, uh, if we've set up America as the Christian nation, the beacon on a hill, um, if we've defined how we are to see one another as immigrants and equal, and then we've defined like, oh, this is how you engage with power, then we actually have to keep that story going. Where like, no, no, you, this, this is true for everyone, even though there are terrible examples. Um, in history of when that hasn't been the case and terrible examples of how that is, is not the case right now. We have to keep that lie going. And so I think in lie six, we actually get at the realities of what happens when you put your faith in an idol. And every single time you put your meaning defined by an idol, your destiny defined by an idol, morality defined by an idol, and your purpose defined by an idol, we will come up short. And if we, if we put all of our faith and hope and trust in an idol like a country and it's the ideal, then it's going to fall short because Jesus is the only one who satisfies. So that's chapter six. Let's get to lie number seven. We are the most prosperous nation in the world. <laughs> yeah. So, again, if starting with that first lie, who gets to define prosperity? Um, and I think, is it, is it the GDP, the gross domestic product? Is it Wall Street? Or is it the living one, the one who rose from the grave and is seated at the right hand of the Father? Like, is that who defines prosperity for us? Um, and so I really want to, there is some, there are statistics in that chapter. There is breakdowns in that chapter of the reality that we are not, quote unquote, as economically equal as we claim to be or desire to be. And that's actually not possible based on the system of idolatry that we have. But even more than that, prosperity that God offers, all of us have access to. There's a beauty in the kingdom of God where um, he says everyone will have what they need. Um, and so the kingdom of God is a place where there is no weeping, no pain, no mourning, no jealousy, no violence, no abuse. Like we can like, the dream that God calls us to is very, very different than the, the invitation um, from America. So that's number seven. Now, uh, let's get to line number eight. We are the most generous people in the world. Right. Again, so this is, if I define power in Chapter 5, I have access to it. Now we have to define, like, what does it mean to have power in the society? So prosperity and a lot of us want to see ourselves as genuinely generous people because if you live out of these lies, then what you'll actually have is immense stratification where there are poor and rich on many different levels, where there's race, racial differences, there's gender disparities, there's actually preference for lots of people in this system that's set up opposite to the kingdom of God. But we tell ourselves that we're generous. And the reality is, None of us can outgive God, and He defines what generosity looks like. And so, I, I do give statistics about the church and how we're actually not that generous. Um, and so, if everything belongs to God, because it does, Psalm 50, what does it look like for us to give like Him? Um, there's a quote in there from Tim Keller, um, and he says that. Um, in all of his years of ministry, he's had people confess murder, adultery, abuse, violence. And he said, but no one has ever confessed greed. And I think that is 
um, that's telling of what we believe about ourselves and what we believe about our money. Um, and so that I dive really into that because we cannot gain the whole world and lose our souls and then testify that we've been, we still have it because it's going to come out. Uh, line number nine, America is the land of the free. Right. And so I love, um, I really, really like having conversations about big concepts. And I think that the reality is, again, when we talk about freedom, is that how God would define what freedom looks like? Um, and so looking at, quote-unquote, freedom in the United States, I do believe that there's a fundamental difference between um, the freedom that God calls us to and invites us to and affords us on the cross that is not just a heavenly freedom but is a present one. There's a difference between that and the freedom that is laid out by the founding documents of this country and lived out in the laws and ordinances that exist. And so, again, putting those two things side by side and say, what does it look like to pledge allegiance to the freedom that God has called us to um, and actually leave the fake freedom that's offered to us by the culture that's around us? Jonathan, let's move to uh, line number 10. America is the home of the brave. Oh, I think you skipped one. Uh, What did we miss? Did we miss uh, truth? Um, eight, nine, ten. Yeah, we, well, eight, eight was. Oh, brave. Uh, a, a, yeah, we're 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 on target. Line number okay. ten. America is the home of the brave. Tell us about that. Yeah. So, actually, I think I was getting ready to preach a message for later that's in my head. <laughs> and so, the home of the brave. Um, I think was probably one of the hardest chapters for me to write. Um, particularly because my, my father and I have uncles and friends in the military. Um, and as a person who fights sex trafficking and labor slavery, um, for me, like there's, there's a bravery that comes um, with, um, uh, unfortunately, I think the association with violence. And so I am brave if I am willing to sacrifice my life or hurt things like that. And so I I really dive into a really hard chapter to say, God, how do you define bravery? And so I think there's an invitation for all of us, um, particularly me as a man and how my masculinity has been shaped. What does bravery look like in the kingdom of God? And so that chapter juxtaposes the two invitations, one from the kingdom of God and what bravery looks like, and one from American masculine culture. And I think they're very, very different images of manhood. Now we get to July number 11. America is the greatest country on earth. Right. And so here is where I think um, that it comes full circle, where in chapter one, we've laid out like, this is what your faith story is, right? If you, if you believe these lies, this is your faith story. Lies two, three, and four, how we see ourselves, how we see other people. Lies five, six, and seven, how we interact with power and receive it. Lies 8, 9, and 10, now that you have that power, how do you yield it in the world? Um, and now, like, that will create this babble. And I believe, like, we actually, again, every time we set up something else to worship, I believe we set up a babble. Um, uh, and babble is, a, is symbolic, and it's also literal, coming out of the scriptures, where we set ourselves up to say we can be great. And there are quotes from every generation and every political party in the United States that says we are the city on the hill. We are the last best hope for the world. And the reality is the last best hope for the world has always been Jesus. Always, always Jesus. And the kingdom that he calls us to and will reign for all time. And so again, setting themselves up. There can't be two greatest kingdoms. There can't be two gods with the power to define. I believe there's one God. Um, Father, Son, and Spirit that has the power to do that. Now I want you to talk about lie number 12. We are one nation. Right. And so I think there's an, then there's an illusion um, of inclusivity in America. Um, but again, that story has to bear itself out. So if I, if I land on lie 11 and say that we're the greatest nation in the world, and then we say we're all a part of that, Again, I think that it's an invitation to be joined to Babylon, to be joined to an idol, to be joined to a false story when God gives us the exact same invitation in Revelation 
5 and Revelation 18, 19, and 21, where we have to choose who we're going to worship. We have to choose what family we're going to belong to when it comes to our faith. And I believe that I would 1,000% want every single person to know that the only nation that reigns higher than all of these things is the family of the kingdom of God. We can put our whole identity in that. And if we put our identities in something else, it won't just let us down, but we won't get Jesus. And John 15 says, apart from him, we can do nothing. Ephesians 2 says, we are dead in our transgressions. And God and Jesus, um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, like he invites us and makes us new. We used to see things in an old way, but now we behold it anew. And so I, there's a vision there, particularly through the lens of my mom dying around like, this is the, she went to be with Jesus. The words on her lips were scripture, and it does not matter the, um, or the, the problems that she experiences being uh, a, a race, under a racialized society in the South and looking at her birth certificate and seeing Negra and the things that were hurled at her as she went to school and what she had to deal with in her adult life. The reality is those things do not win. Jesus wins. And we get to be in his family, and that is the greatest family, the greatest nation, the greatest place to be. Um, and so, yeah, that's how we, we end the book, with an invitation um, to follow Jesus into the hard places. Um, as we do it every chapter, there's questions in every chapter, debriefing and discussion materials in every chapter to say, how can we center Jesus in a world that doesn't want Jesus on the throne? Tell me what you want us to take from this um discussion? Yeah. Um, my hope is that it's not that everyone would agree with me. Um, I think that people write a lot of books and a lot of resources to convince people that they're right. Um, I would like to write a book to be understood, particularly because I don't think that we, we live in a culture and a society that's willing to listen to people. And so I wanted to create a space where I have listened and engaged with people and then create spaces where people can listen and engage with one another around difficult um, topics. Because whenever we talk about idolatry, whenever we talk about putting Jesus in the center, there's going to be resistance. And so I would love for people to engage with the book and say, if Jesus is on the throne of my heart, if he's on the throne in heaven, if God is God and there are none beside him, where have we chosen to worship otherwise? And would we lament, confess, repent, and seek reconciliation with God and others? Because his kingdom is coming, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I want, I want to be in that number. And if anyone in humanity is missing, then, then we've missed it. And so I would love for people to have deep conversations about Jesus and what it looks like to follow him um, in a world that is increasingly, increasingly broken. In the conclusion, you say, leaving our nets to follow Jesus. Mm -hmm. What are our nets? Oh, man, this is my favorite story, Luke 5, <laughs> Luke 5, verses 1 through 11. Um, Peter um, lived his whole life um, in Galilee, was ready to be a fisherman, had a strong business, and I believe that Peter had his life set up a certain way, um, where he was going to fish, he was going to have a business and provide for his family, and that was his trajectory. And I think um, our nets are our plans. There are plans for how we're going to make money, which is usually where we derive our value in our country. Our plans are to stay in our ethnic group or in our racially assigned box or in the things that we're comfortable with, um, because those, we're defined by the other people around us. Um, I believe our nets are the plans and dreams of those who invest in us. So our parents, our cultures, our background, how society invites us to form our identity. I think um, our nets are our community, our nets are our vocation, our nets are how we see ourselves. We actually have to step out of that to follow Jesus and then allow him to redefine what it looks like to have our vocation be, as Martin Luther and other theologians have talked about, the reality is like our vocation is to receive the love of God and experience. Experience his joy. 
our vocation is not just to make money, not just to get married, not just to have a kid, not just like you can be fulfilled without any of those things. They're wonderful to have, praise be to God. But we can be fully satisfied, fully satisfied with Jesus. And I think we have to leave our idols to, to be able to enter into that because you cannot hold both of those things. What's next in your life? We've got about 30 seconds, Jonathan. What's next on your agenda? Oh, well, actually, um, I am going to be working on, um, I'm working on a degree, finishing my master's. And we are actually launching our Emotionally Healthy Activist course for followers of Jesus who want to engage with these issues from a Christian perspective and to invite their non-Christian friends to say, what does Jesus have to say about climate change and abortion and violence and abuse and war and gay marriage and all the hard things we talk about? Could we create a space where Jesus is at the center to talk about it and to follow him more fully, not just with people who agree with us, but across difference? I'll be working on that. And you can, people can sign up for that at patreon.com slash IVED and all the, the course materials and stuff are there. Jonathan Walton, author of 12 Lies That Hold America Captive, has been our guest. Stay with us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We've got more right after this. My guest in that first segment was Jonathan Walton from New York City. Uh, Greg Gilbert is the senior pastor of Third Avenue Baptist Church in Louisville, uh, author of Assured. Uh, Greg, welcome. I hope things are well. Thanks, Pat. They are. Things are really good. Hope you're well, too. Tell me about your church in Louisville. It's a, that's a big one, isn't it? Um, it's not that big. We have about uh, 600 members, and you know we would have 750 people, adults and children, in the building on a Sunday morning. Yes. Um, it's situated right, literally, like right, at the campus of the University of Louisville. So we're an alleyway away from that campus. So, um, you know, we've got a, a strong uh, campus outreach ministry at, at UofL, and uh, uh, it's an exciting place to be. Uh, Greg, uh, what's the background on this book? It's called Assured, uh, Discover Grace, Let Go of Guilt, and Rest in Your Salvation. What, what's the mission here? Well, the mission is to, is to help Christians who struggle with uh, doubts about their salvation. Um, uh, I uh, did a sermon series some time ago at 3rd at Avenue on 1st John and was amazed how many people told me before that series that they were terrified of it because 1st mm-hmm. John so often gets used as a hammer to make people sort of question or doubt their, their salvation. And what I, what I realized studying that book um, is that First John was written not to unsettle Christians' consciences about their salvation, but to settle them. I mean, he says 30-some-odd times over 30 verses, I'm writing these things so that you may know, so that you may know, so that you may know that you have eternal life. So this book is, is written for people who doubt, and uh, it, it's basically just to say, look, here are some tools to use to, to address that doubt, Here's where your focus needs to be in order to strengthen your, your sense of confidence and assurance. And, and here's how you trust in Christ and uh, even turn that doubt into a stronger faith in him. Uh, Baker Books put this book out, uh, nine chapters. The first one, The Problem of Assurance. Uh, what are you writing there, Greg? Well, that's the introduction to the book. So so it's, it's saying, uh, you know, assurance is a... Assurance is a thing for every Christian, right? It's a, it's a question for every Christian, because a sense of assurance is, is really coming out of faith. I mean, insofar as faith is, is our certainty that Jesus is going to save us, our trust that he will save us from our sins, a sense of assurance is sort of necessary to faith. And so I think that at one point or another in every Christian's life, uh, you're, you're going to face questions of assurance and confidence. Uh, and so I'm just kind of laying out some of the things that can cause that. You know, there are sometimes theological problems that cause questions of assurance. There are other times uh, uh, it's it's looking at our sin that causes us to, to have questions about assurance. Other times it's a particular passage of Scripture that, that scares us in one way or another. And so I'm just kind of laying out, uh, here here's the problem. Here's what we all face uh, as we as we walk through the Christian life and have, have doubts at times about our, about our salvation. Let's move to the next topic, the driving sources of assurance, uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
what's up here. Yeah, I yeah I uh, the the way I think about Christian assurance is, and the way I read the New Testament is that essentially the Bible lays out four sources of assurance for us as as Christians. Um, two of those, I think, are are what I would call driving sources of assurance, uh, and I use the the analogy of a car. Um, if you want more speed out of your car, you need to put focus and attention and weight on the accelerator of the car, right? And so I think that when it comes to a Christian assurance, there are two accelerators that if we want more assurance, this is where we put weight and focus. Those two accelerators are uh, first the, the uh, truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then second, the promises of God. So chapter two is about that first accelerator. It's about the the promises of the gospel itself, uh, and how those how those help us to have more assurance in our Christian walk. Now, uh, I want you to explain to us the driving sources of assurance, uh, the promises of God. Yeah. So, so uh, in in chapter two, we talk about the uh, the truths of the gospel and how how that. Uh, those truths of the gospel, everything from the fact that God created us to the fact that we are hopeless, helpless, abjectly ruined sinners, to the fact that Jesus did everything, 100% of what's necessary for our salvation, and we contribute 0% of that, even to the nature of faith, all of those things, when you understand them rightly, tend, tend toward giving you a, a confidence in Christ rather than in self. And it's actually a search for confidence in self you know, a sense that I belong in the presence of God or I'm worthy to be a Christian. It's the search for that kind of self-assurance that causes doubt to, to grow and take hold in our lives. And what we want to have is not self-assurance, but Christ assurance. So that's what, that's what that first chapter is about. Um, the third chapter is, is looking at the promises that God makes in the Bible to, those, to, to, to people who believe the gospel. So one of those critical promises is that God will save everybody who comes to faith, uh, comes to Christ in faith. And there's no fine print to that. There's no sort of, you know, subsection 27B that qualifies it or nuances it. It's a wide-open universal promise. You come to Jesus in faith, you will be saved. The second promise that I think is really critical uh, that I talk about there is the fact that God says, once you come to, to, to Christ in faith, I will never lose anybody who does that. So he's not going to revoke those promises. He's not going to rethink them. You're not going to do something that makes him say, oh, uh, well, maybe these promises don't apply to you. He says, if you trust in Christ, he's going to save you now, and he's going to save you at the end. And, and once you grasp that, your sense of confidence and assurance will deepen tremendously. Now, uh, let's get to this topic. A supernatural source of assurance the witness of the Spirit. Yep, that's the third source of assurance that the, that the Bible gives us. There's the truth of the gospel, the promises of God, and then the witness of the Spirit. Um, so in that book, we ask, we ask the question, well, what is it? What's the witness of the Spirit? And uh, what the Bible teaches is that when, when you become a Christian, 100% of those who are Christians uh, uh, have the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in them. And the Spirit witnesses with our spirit. This is Romans 5, Romans 8, Galatians 4, I believe it is. Um, witnesses with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, the thing about the witness of the spirit is that it, it seems to uh, strengthen or weaken based on the will of God, and it seems like in the Bible, you look at Romans 5, that the witness of the spirit comes most strongly in those times of life when uh, we are most afflicted and most pressed. So it's like at the moment of extremity in the Christian's life, the Spirit uh, seems to cry out more loudly out of the depths of our soul that, that we are, in fact, children of God. So uh, that's just something that the Spirit does on His own accord, right? There's nothing we can do to cause that. There's nothing we can do to make that happen. Uh, the Spirit dwells in all of us. He witnesses uh, to the fact that we're saved for all of us, but it seems to strengthen or weaken based on God's will, but also based on, it seems, the circumstances of our lives at any given moment. Why is there so much, I guess, confusion or um, lack of knowledge about the Holy Spirit in our lives? Well, part of it is, part of it is because uh, 
uh, we tend to focus on on God the Father and God the Son, and the Holy Spirit will work in the background, you know, in, in our minds a lot. Uh, some of that, I think, some of the focus on on God the Father and and the Son is appropriate. I think I think it's biblical because throughout the Bible, the job of the Holy Spirit, his his own sort of self taken role, is to spotlight Jesus Christ. So the Spirit doesn't seem to want a whole lot of emphasis on himself. His whole role seems to be, his whole heart seems to be to spotlight the glory of Jesus Christ. So some of that, some of that lack of focus on the Holy Spirit is appropriate. Uh, but it can go too far, right? And we can forget that, you know, actually, in a beautiful way, it's, it's the Spirit who uh, breathes the breath of life into us at the moment we become a Christian. And it's the Spirit whose face we will see you know, as as we as we're resurrected to new life in the new age, and it's the spirit who's kind of with us in the war from from moment one. Um, so even you know through all the ups and downs of life, he's the one that's with us in the smoke and the fire. So you know we don't want to forget him. He is our he is our best friend, um, as as the whole Godhead is in its in its triunity. Um, but but some of it's appropriate because he wants to spotlight Jesus. The undermanning of assurance. The lies we believe fill us in. Yeah, that's a that's a, I believe the fourth chapter in the book. The lies we the lies we tend to believe that that cause uh, assurance to be undermined. There are a bunch of those. I think I write about six different lies that we that we tend to believe. Um, so, for example, one of those is that uh, uh, even if we wouldn't affirm it straight up, a lot of times deep in our hearts we'll have a false idea that Jesus has sort of had to convince the Father to allow us into his presence. That the Father basically holds his nose as Jesus drags a skunk into the throne room. Um, but Jesus has paid the price, and therefore there's nothing the Father can do, and he has to accept it. But of course that's just, that's just false, and it will undermine your, your sense of assurance. You'll, you'll feel like you're forever cowering in the presence of God um, if you believe that. But it, it's false. The Bible says that the whole work of redemption, the whole, the whole work of salvation— uh, was born in the Father's heart and out of His love uh, for sinners. So uh, you know, it, it's just it's just not true that that Jesus loves us and the Father really just kind of tolerates us. Um, so that that's one of the lies that that I talk about in the book. But I, I think there are about half a dozen that are important uh, and have a tendency to undermine assurance. Uh, now tell us about this next topic: the confirming source of assurance. The fruits of obedience. Yeah, uh, that that is actually the uh, the thing that causes a lot of Christians to have questions about assurance because they look at their lives, um, they try to take stock of the fruits as Jesus talks about it of their of their lives, and uh, uh, what they come away with is the conclusion either that there's not enough fruit, or the fruit isn't good enough, or uh, you know this this one thing is going on in my life and it causes me to it causes me to doubt my my salvation whether or not I'm a Christian um, and so theologically you can have this reaction against that where people will say we shouldn't look at our lives at all you know our faith is supposed to be in Jesus and to look at our lives in any way whatsoever as a source of assurance is uh, it's to put our faith in ourselves um, but what I say in this chapter is look the, the Bible does in fact talk about self-examination. It does talk about fruit inspection, um, and, and inspecting the fruit of your life can either deepen assurance or it can weaken it, um, but it's an important biblical truth. The, the trouble is, and this is what I get to in the very next chapter, um, and, and that is that there are certain errors we can make and mistakes we can make as we're doing this fruit inspection. Uh, so one of those chapters that you just, you just asked about is saying, yeah, look, self-examination's good and important. Uh, it's an important source of assurance. Um, the next chapter says, here are the mistakes you can make in doing that fruit inspection. My guest is Greg Gilbert. He's a pastor in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, his book <clears throat> is called <clears throat> Assured. Okay, next topic. Misusing a good tool. Mistakes we make in considering our good works. What's up here, Greg? Yeah, the, uh, uh, like I said, you, you, 
fruit inspection is good. You have to look at the, the works in your life, and, and those, those works, uh, those, that, that fruit, can, can either confirm you in your faith. You know, you can look at your, at your fruit and say, ah, look, it looks like the Holy Spirit is working in my life. This, you know, I can see the power of the Spirit working. I can see my life changing in certain ways, and your assurance can be confirmed. On the other hand, you can look at the fruit in your life, and, and it can really serve as a warning, you know, that, that something, is, something is wrong, right? Um, the trouble that Christians run into a lot, though, is in treating good works like an accelerator, if you remember the analogy of the car we were using. And uh, good works, though, in the Bible, the way they're held out is not an accelerator of the car. It's more like a speedometer. Um, and the trouble is that Christians will think, in order to have more assurance, what I need to do is just get more good fruit on the tree. I need to do more good things, and I need to do fewer bad things, and if I can just do that, I'll feel more like a Christian then. I'll feel better about myself. Well, the trouble with that is that it's essentially like thinking, I want my car to go faster, and so therefore I'm going to reach up and push the speedometer up from 40 to 60, and the car will go faster. But of course it won't. If you want the car to go faster, you have to put your foot on the accelerator. In other words, when it comes to assurance, the truths of the gospel and the promises of God. You put weight there, and then as your faith deepens, as you love Jesus more because of that, you'll see more and more fruit showing up in your life. My guest is Greg Gilbert. His book is Assured. We've got another segment with Greg. But first, these messages on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Uh, Stay with us. We'll be right back. Folks, you're listening to 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word in Orlando. I'm Pat Williams, your host. Greg Gilbert is our guest, author of Assured. Greg, we've uh, moved to this topic, uh, and it's a question mark. What about besetting sins? Uh, What do you teach us here? Besetting sin is the the sort of shorthand that Christians through, through the centuries have given to uh, struggles with sin and temptation that just seem to persist for a long time in, in life, and sometimes even for a lifetime. Um, and so the question is often, well, if if there is sin that I struggle with for a long time, does that doesn't that mean doesn't that have to mean that I'm not a that I'm not a Christian? Um, and so uh, uh, we explore that in the book. What is what does the Bible say about about this this topic of of sins that seem to persist? What what in, what what is there to say about that? Um, I think there's a lot to say, right? I think that uh, I think that the the presence of sin in a Christian's life, even for a long time, uh, does not necessarily mean that you're not a Christian, right? The Bible says we're all going to sin until the day we stand before Jesus. Uh, for some people, what that struggle with sin looks like is just rank upon rank of enemy coming after them for for life. Other Christians are going to be locked in a kind of mortal combat with with one enemy for for the entirety of their lives. The point, though, is that the point, though, is that even when it comes to these besetting sins, what you want to see is is not necessary is not necessarily absolute victory over that sin. There's no promise in the Bible that we'll have absolute victory over sin before we stand before Jesus. But what the Bible does say is that we ought to be seeing the smoke of battle. You can't just make peace with your sin and say, "Well, this is one that I'm just never gonna never gonna be able to beat," and so therefore I don't have to fight it. You know, that's the response of a child of the world. The response of a child of light, a Christian, will be to say to even a besetting sin, look, I have a new king now, and you and I, Mr. Sin, will never live at peace with each other again. I will fight you with everything I've got until Jesus takes me home or or comes back. Um, So there's a lot to say about that, but that's the essential message. Um, the, The question of whether a person is a Christian or looks like a Christian is answered by whether they're fighting sin, whether you can see the smoke of battle in their life. Whereas the unsaved uh, don't even think that much about it. Would that be accurate? Well, yeah. Or you just, you know, I think if you if you have made peace with your sin, uh, you're in need of a wake up call at the very least, right? You can't sign a peace treaty with your sin and say I don't have to fight you. Um, yeah. Let's move to the. Uh ninth topic striving for assurance uh, that's your wrap-up chapter uh tell us about it greg yeah so uh that last chapter just asks what can we do 
you know, if we're if we want more assurance in uh, in our lives, if we want to want to have a greater confidence that Jesus really has saved us, what is there to do? Um, and it reiterates the main message of the book, which is you will never come to an assurance of faith by staring at yourself. You will only come to an assurance of, of salvation by staring at Jesus, by focusing on the truth of the gospel and the promises of God. You have to know Jesus better, and that is what will create confidence in him. You'll never get confidence in Jesus by staring at yourself and trying to just get more fruit on your tree. That, that will not do it. Um, in fact, you'll undermine your assurance every day of the week if you, if you try that. Um, another, another really important point that I make in that chapter is that uh, the, the striving for assurance really must take place in the context of, uh, of fellowship with other believers. Uh, no Christian is meant to be an island. If you try to do fruit inspection by yourself, uh, you're going to get it wrong you know, in one way or another. You know, Jeremiah tells us that our hearts are deceitful above all things. And so if you try to come to a conclusion about your own life, you're, you're either going to give yourself too much credit or you're not going to give God enough credit for what he's doing in your life. But you're, but you're almost never going to get it exactly right. You need other Christians around you helping you to do that work. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's kind of how the book wraps up, just with a, what I hope is a kind of rousing encouragement to uh, stare at Jesus. Um, you know, there was one, one old preacher who said that for every look we give to, at ourselves, we ought to give ten looks to Jesus. Um, I think he was wrong. I think it's for every look that we give to ourselves, we ought to give a thousand looks to Jesus. Um, but that's what I encourage you to do at the end of the book. Greg, what do you say to those people who are worried uh, that they have lost or are losing their salvation? What do you tell them? Well, the question is not is not whether you've lost it. That's never the question, because nobody ever loses a genuine salvation. I mean, the, the Bible really could not be clearer about that. Um, Jesus says it. The apostles say it. Uh, once you are a child of Christ, God promises with no fine print that, that he will never lose any of those who come to, to Jesus in faith. Now, there could be a question and, and a danger that a person could be a professing Christian. Like, I, I, I say that I'm a Christian, but they're really not. So that would be that would be the question. And to somebody who wonders if they're in that category, I, I would say, I would say, <laughs> Again, like I say to everybody, look to Jesus and trust in him. Like renounce every other renounce every other claim to God's favor that, that you might make. Don't pull something out of your pocket and say, God, but I was better than this person or I did this or I, I managed to avoid this in my life. Don't don't do that. Throw all that stuff away. Like Paul says, it's all rubbish compared to compared to Jesus. What you need to do is look to Jesus, recognize him to be the one hundred percent only savior that there is and say, God, I am trusting 100% in him. I've got no plea before you at all. Uh, my, faith is in, my faith is in Jesus. And if he doesn't save me, I'm lost. That's it. I got, I got no other bullet to shoot. Craig, I want to go back and touch uh, uh, on the discussion we had about the Holy Spirit. Uh, Dr. Tony Evans, uh, in his inimitable style, says that... Uh, we have a, uh, a beeper system, and if our channels are open, the beeper system is the Holy Spirit uh, telling us uh, this is the right thing to do. Or the beeper system inside says, nope, 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 don't go there with those people. Um, what do you think of that? Is that what the Holy Spirit's job is, to just keep inside of us telling us what's right and what's wrong? Well, that's part of it. Uh, that you know, I, I doubt Dr. Evans would say that exhausts the work of the Spirit. Sure, you know, sure. The Holy the Holy Spirit is is busy sanctifying us and protecting us and fighting for us. And Paul even says praying for us when we don't know what to pray. And yeah. he's regenerating us and all the rest. I mean, he does a ton of things. But yeah, I think I think part of what he does is that he awakens our conscience again. You know, so that so that our conscience is more conformed to God's will. Uh, more and more through life as we're sanctified. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting analogy, your conscience acting like a, like a beeper. You know, I just, you, your conscience is dead until, you, until you're regenerated by the Spirit of God when you become a Christian. But, but then it comes to life, right? And all of a sudden, you know, you care more about the things of God. You care more about, yes. about avoiding evil and sin. And the Holy Spirit uh, is about the work of shaping our conscience through all the years of our lives. 
What do you want listeners to take from our chat here, Greg? Uh, I think most importantly is that if, if you're a person who, who struggles with assurance and struggles with doubt of your salvation, the biggest error that Christians make in trying to address those doubts and, and, and uh, lack of assurance is that they, they turn inward and look at themselves rather than looking at Jesus. Uh, you're, just, you're never going to find certainty, confidence, and assurance by looking at your own sinful heart. You have to find it by looking at Jesus and seeing how immovably solid and true uh, and faithful he actually is. Greg Gilbert, senior pastor of Third Avenue Baptist Church in downtown Louisville. He lives in Kentucky. His wife's name is Moriah. What a great name, by the way, Greg. Yeah. And they have three children. Great person, too. Well, I can imagine. And on our next visit, we're going to talk about your love of basketball, coffee, and Thai food. How's that sound? (laughs) Awesome. Sounds like a great evening. Uh, A million thanks, Greg. I'm so glad we could visit, and uh, your book is valuable and helpful. Thank you, Pat. Folks, we've got to wrap up right after this. Just a reminder, this is the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour you're listening to. It's 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word, in Orlando. We're always happy when you plug in with us. And remember, faith comes by hearing. Folks, uh, thanks so much for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Uh, Jonathan Walton was our first guest from New York, uh, 12 Lies That Hold America Captive. And then we swung out to Louisville, Kentucky and caught up with senior pastor Greg Gilbert, talking about his book, Assured. Please visit my website. It's patwilliams.com. The Twitter page is Orlando Magic Pat. And uh, take a visit to Amazon. Check out my latest book. It's called Character Carved in Stone. It's about those 12 benches at West Point, a little place called Trophy Point. And uh, I think you'll find some value in the book. In the meantime, have a wonderful week ahead, and uh, we'll be back next weekend for more on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. And keep tuned, folks, all day long to 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word in Orlando.